0: series is based on Mark chapter 8 and verse 34 where Jesus gives an invitation he says if anyone and he's talking to anybody throughout history if anybody wants to come follow me this is what it looks like and you got to die to yourself take up your cross come follow him and then in Mark chapter 8 verse 34 all the way through Mark chapter 10 and verse 52 which is where we'll end up today he's giving a picture of what it looks like to be a real follower of Jesus Christ. And so today we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Mark chapter 10. We're going to start reading in verse 46. But what we've seen in this series is there's no such thing as a follower who doesn't actually follow Jesus. This concept that we get in the American church where you can just go to church and that makes you a Christian. Or you pray a prayer at one point in your life and then you're good for the rest of eternity after that is foreign to the New Testament. What we see is that that's not what it is to be a follower of Jesus, what it is to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus gives us in Mark chapter 8 through Mark chapter 10, and it starts with dying to yourself, taking up your cross, and then following him. And we saw that it then intersects with our marriages, our possessions, with how we deal with sin, our own ambitions and goals. and It impacts every area of our lives. And so as we jump into this passage today, I want to ask you this question before we even get to the passage. In your mind, if I were to say have a picture of the ideal disciple, the ideal follower of Jesus, what picture would you get in your mind? What does the ideal follower of Jesus look like? And for some of you, it might be, you know, super Christian. It's like the missionary with an M on their chest. They can leap, you know, missionary places in a single bound, and, and they can lead you know, 5,000 people to Jesus, the first 5,000 people they come into contact with, and revivals break out wherever they go. You start thinking about all the stuff that's been described throughout these passages of scripture. He says to the rich man, sell all your possessions and then come follow me. He says to the people that are struggling with sin, you deal radically with your sin. You do whatever you have to do. Cut off your hand, gouge out your eye, cut off your feet, do whatever you have to do to deal with your sin. He talks about marriage. He talks about how marriage is not just this thing that we get into because we fall into love, but it's supposed to be a ministry. It's supposed to be permanent. It's supposed to experience intimacy. It's supposed to be a picture of my love. He talks about what it's like to, in your goals in life. that you're, If you want to be first, you've got to be last. You're going to be great, you've got to serve. And so what is your picture of the ideal disciple? Keep that in mind as we go to this passage today. In this passage, I think what we're going to see may look different than what some of us expect as we look at the ideal disciple. In verse 46 of Mark chapter 10, as we wrap up this section, uh, Jesus has just been with his two disciples, James and John, and they're arguing about who can be on the right and who can be on the left and give us these seats of position, give us glory. And then he talks to all 12 of them and says that even the Son of Man Didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then verse 46 says, Then they came to Jericho, which we hear about in the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. This is about a mile south of that by Jesus' time. Not quite the same exact place. As they came to this town in Jericho, it says, Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd. So there's a whole bunch of people with them, Some kind of entourage with them. They were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus. Now I'm going to ruin the end of the story for you. He gets healed at the end. But this is the only guy in the book of Mark that gets named who receives healing from Jesus. So you've got Jairus' daughter. It's not Jairus who gets healed. It's his daughter who gets healed. you got lepers. There's another blind guy. You've got people that can't walk. There's all kinds of different things. The guy with leprosy that pulls his hand out of, the thing, out of his arch shirt. We don't know any of their names. We get this guy's name, Bartimaeus. That is the son of Timaeus. He was sitting by the roadside begging Verse 47, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And then the crowd changes from rebuking him, so they called him. The blind, Jesus wants you, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. And we'll pause right there for right now. What we see here in this passage, you've got this guy, he's going to be the picture of the ideal disciple, by the way. And he's a blind man, which is probably not what most of us thought of. And it's interesting, too, when you come to this passage, and you can't get this from just like a surface reading of Mark, but if you go back, some of you may remember, and this will be a while back now, back in Mark chapter 8, and verses 22 to 26, there was a story of a blind man being healed. Right after that is when this section started. And then we're ending the section, Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52, with a blind man being healed. And I've shared with you before that Bible scholars call this literary technique that Mark's using an inclusio. You start off with one statement, phrase, story, and you end with a statement, phrase, it's the same thing. And what you're communicating is everything in between here is about that topic. And so you've got a blind man physically healed of his blindness in Mark chapter eight, verses 22 to 26. Then you've got a guy who's physically healed of his blindness in Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. Do you know what's happened in between all there? He's been revealing spiritual sight of what it looks like for him to be the Christ and for us to follow him. He's been showing it to his disciples, his 12 closest followers, and he's, Lord willing, showing it to you and to me. What does it really look like here? And he concludes with this guy where we see some characteristics in his life that are characteristics of the ideal disciple, the ideal follower of Jesus, which should be characteristics of our lives. And it's not that they're superhuman either. It's that what they realize it has to do with living by faith. And what we see with this guy is the first thing that we can see is as he sits in dust and he cries out for mercy, He's utterly helpless, but he's not just helpless. He realizes his helplessness. An ideal disciple realizes their helplessness, and you and I, if we're going to be the kind of followers of Jesus that Jesus desires for us to be, we must realize our helplessness. Now, notice I'm not saying we must become helpless. We must think about some weakness in our life and then focus on that point. We are helpless. Many of us just don't realize it. Like that's how you start a relationship with Jesus. You must come to the realization of your helplessness or you're not a Christian because you, you are separated from God. He's holy and righteous and you're sinful and you can't do anything about it. And you can't fix it and you can't work it off by being good enough. There's nothing you can do. So you need help. You are helpless. You need a savior. See, the problem is for many of us, we oftentimes function like, I could just use a little help. In life. I'm not helpless. I just need like some tips for living. Like, life is a chess game, and God, if you just put these pieces here, I could get the rest of the way, but you just got to kind of move these circumstances and make, help me out in some ways, but I'm not helpless. You started the Christian journey helpless. There's probably been moments in your life since then, for most of us, where we've come to a spot where we realize, I can't, I can't do this. And you think about it, the alcoholic has to come to the place, they're going to stop drinking, they've got to come to the place to realize they can't do it on their own. Willpower is not going to get it done. And so you've got to come to the place where you hit the bottom and you realize, I need I need, I need help because I just can't. Or the person that's, their marriage has fallen apart, and oftentimes there's one person that's fighting for it, and the other person's done, it's over. There's nothing the person that's fighting for it can do to make it work. They're helpless. Or the, the successful person. There's, many, there's several folks in our church like this. You, you did everything. You lived a life. You got the life you wanted, but there's still something missing. And you realize, well, I can get all the stuff I want, And it still doesn't fill this void in my heart. And you come to the place where you realize, I can't, I can't fill the void. I can't do this thing. I can't fix the marriage. I can't stop drinking. And now we've got something to work with. Because now you're in a spot, just so you know, that helplessness is actually a sign of strength. That's when we come to the place of helplessness, that we then put on the display the strength of Jesus Christ in our lives. It's at that point that we start living by faith. It's at the point of helplessness that we're now free to follow Jesus Christ. The deception for many of us the difficulty is as we come to those rock bottom spots, whether it's because of substance abuse or because of a circumstance in life or because things aren't just our dreams aren't being fulfilled or whatever it is, and then we cry out to God and he does a work in our lives and what happens is we start to climb out of the valley. We start to, you know, st- we're struggling with this sin and it was holding us in bondage for so long and then God delivers us. He does a miraculous thing and like six months later you're like, yeah, I'm good, I mean I could use Jesus' help sometimes, but I'm good. And we start, fe- we start forgetting that we're helpless and that we need Jesus just as much at the point of salvation as we do for every step after that and walking with Jesus. And here we see a picture of helplessness with this man in this passage. You go back to verse 46. Jesus is coming along. He's got this huge crowd with him. So his 12 disciples are there. Other people that have either heard his teaching, they want to be healed. Maybe they're genuine followers of his. There's a big crowd of them. And then there's this guy, Bartimaeus. He's blind. We know that he hasn't always been blind because later we're going to read down in in verse 51. The Greek word that he uses when he says he wants to see is to regain his sight. I want to see again. I mean he was able to see at one point, but now he can't and he wants it back. And so try and imagine for a moment what it must have been like to be this guy. And, and I'll use these words intentionally. Try and see the world through his eyes. Because he sees things in this passage that n- no one has been seeing. In Mark chapter 8 through Mark chapter 10. Physically, everything is darkness. But he can see some stuff here. So try and imagine being this guy. He wakes up in the morning. It's a normal day, just like every other day has been for him. Maybe he remembers what it was like when he was able to work, because in this time, blind people, they couldn't work. They couldn't get work. If you didn't have somebody to take care of you, your only option was to beg. And so he wakes up. Maybe he remembers what it was like when he could work. Most people believed in that time that if you were blind, it was a punishment from God. That's because of your sin. Now, we see this even in Jesus' own disciples. In John chapter 9, they're walking along, and there's a guy who was born blind, and Jesus' disciples say to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? Of course this is punishment for sin, his blindness. Who did it? And then Jesus teaches them in that situation, no, your thinking is wrong. But the point is not that his thinking's right. wrong. He, he believes this. He genuinely believes that he's blind because of his sin. And so you wake up dealing with that regret, dealing with that, realizing this is your punishment, and then you shuffle your way to the side of the road he's probably gone to many times before, he lays his cloak down. Your cloak would be what you would use as a coat. It'd be like a keep yourself warm in winter. You cover up with it at nighttime. It's probably his only earthly possession. And he sits down in the dust, and he starts holding out his hand. Or maybe he had a cup. I don't know. Maybe he had a little Hebrew sign that says anything will help. And he's crying out, "Help! I want money! Everybody who comes by, money, money! Can I have some money? Can somebody help me out? Food? I take food. If you want food? He's just begging. That's what beggars do. We see them all throughout the New Testament. Blind people that are begging." This is common. That's what they did. But then he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is coming. How did he hear? We don't know. Maybe someone told him. Maybe he just heard the commotion of the crowd. Maybe someone, make way. It's the teacher. It's Jesus, this renowned teacher, healer, miracle worker. But did did you notice what happens in verse 47? Look at verse 47 again. It says, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, so he hears hears it's Jesus of Nazareth, but he doesn't shout out Jesus of Nazareth. He began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He doesn't cry out for money. Like, here's this all-powerful, he's just said everything's possible for those who believe. He doesn't cry out for money. He cries out for mercy. And he doesn't cry out to Jesus of Nazareth. He cries out, Jesus, son of David. Here's one of the first places we see this guy see stuff that no one else has seen. It's the first time we see this title used in Mark, son of David. It comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is when David was promised that the Messiah would come, that the Christ would come through his line. And what he's crying out here is not, "You're one of the descendants of David." He's crying out, "You are the Messiah." And so here's a blind guy that can see how glorious the Messiah is, not just healer, not just miracle worker. Let me see. Not just guy who has access to resources. Give me money. Not some guy that can help me out of my life. He's saying, You are the promised one of the Old Testament that fulfills all the promises that were given to David, all the things that were said in the Psalms, all the stuff that Micah said, all the things in Isaiah. It's all, it's you. And here's this guy who sees Jesus. He's blind, but he sees Jesus as glorious. And I ask you, how do you see Jesus? Do you see him as glorious? Is he a genie who you rub the bottle the right way and he gives you what you want? Is he a historical figure? Like, there's a lot of people that go to church that would profess that they've asked Jesus to be their Savior, that are nice, moral people, that if they were honest about Jesus, they would tell you. He's a good example. We read inspiring stories about him from a long time ago. But he doesn't have much impact in their daily life today. He's kind of average. He's kind of mediocre. And, and if you view Jesus as mediocre or average, there's no way in the world you would ever leave, sell all your possessions go follow him, cut your hand off. Are you crazy for some average? I mean, he was a significant historical figure, but I mean, he, he's just an example. See, Jesus was not a revolutionary, an example, a moral teacher. He's, he's the son of man. He called himself the son of man, Daniel 7, who comes on the cloud, speaking with the Ancient of Days, God himself, and receives all glory and honor and power and authority and a kingdom that will never end. And then he came not to be served, not to be worshipped, but to give his life away for you. Do you see Jesus as glorious? I love what Job says in Job chapter 42. Job was a religious guy at the beginning of the book. and Job was offering sacrifices. Job believed in God. But what does he say in Job chapter 42? He says, my ears had heard of you. But now my eyes have seen you. Have you? How do you see? Do you see the glory of Christ? This guy sees it. He's blind, but he's sitting on the edge of the road. He's crying out something no one else has said. Jesus. He hears of Jesus of Nazareth. He cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In verse 48, many rebuked him. Told him to be quiet. Shut up, man. This is is the teacher of Israel. Show some etiquette. Have some respect. Be a nice religious person. Quiet down. You've already been discarded. You're already insignificant. God's obviously punishing you. We don't want to hear from you. You're making a fool of yourself. Stop. Then look at the next part of the verse. But he shouted all the more. <laughs> it's like he got louder. Son of David! i got to yell over these people now. Have mercy on me. And then verse 49, Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And just pause and say, Who would you be in this story? Would you be this guy who's crying out for mercy? And even when people try to stop you, you're just persistent in your faith. You just keep going after Jesus. You don't want something standing between you and Jesus. You're going after Jesus. Or would you be like the people in the crowd? Would you just be a nice religious person and quiet down? Show some etiquette. Or would you be like Jesus? Maybe you have compassion and you're able to see pain. And you've got that ability to look, you you sense when somebody's hurting. Who would you be? Here's this guy, he's crying out for mercy. And Jesus stopped. Now remember verse 49 in light of verse 45. Remember verse 49 in light of what Jesus said back in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. I'm going to go. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and the elders, and I'm going to be murdered. I have, it's necessary. It's a divine necessity that they, they kill me, and then I'm going to rise after three days. And Luke tells us that he set his face to the cross, Luke chapter 9, verse 51. He's laser focused on getting to Jerusalem. He is on mission. And what did he say in verse 45? I came to give my life as a ransom for many For God so loved the world. He's got a lot of responsibility on his shoulders. He's got a lot of things going on here. He's laser focused on getting to the cross. But he stops for this one guy. For this one insignificant sinner. If you need help seeing Jesus as glorious, then notice that. It doesn't matter how insignificant you are. He hears you and he sees you. It doesn't matter how insignificant your request is. He's holding the universe together with the word of his power. That's a lot of responsibility. But he cares about your need. The first title given to God in the scriptures by a person is the God who sees. And here we see Jesus. He sees this man. Out of the crowd, out of his, through his entourage, the people that are stopping him, people that are telling him to be quiet, with all the noise and the other <laughs> requests that are surely coming, he stops. And he notices this guy he tells the crowd to change. Call him. So they called to the blind man. Cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. So here's Jesus calling this guy. And what has this guy been calling out for? He's been calling out for mercy. Have mercy on me, verse 47. Have mercy on me, verse 48. He's calling out for mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is asking for something you don't deserve. So mercy is when you receive blessing that you don't deserve. The only people that can genuinely ask mercy for mercy are helpless people. You can't make God have mercy on you. In Exodus, in Exodus chapter 33, God speaking says, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. You can't earn mercy, you can't cry out enough for mercy, but you have to be at a helpless point to realize you need mercy. Because it's something that's completely undeserved. You can't earn it. You can't get it. Anyway, I was reading a story this week. Some of you periodically send me stories. I've shared uh, stories before of people that are dramatic forgiveness. And I was reading one this week. A woman named Mary Johnson. Mary Johnson uh, was a a single mother, had one son, and he was murdered when he was 16 years old. He was murdered by a 20-year-old guy named O'Shea Israel. And what ended up happening, they didn't really know each other. There was a fight one night, lived in Minneapolis, I believe it was, and uh, they got in an argument, and O'Shea, 20 years old, kills the 16-year-old kid. Goes to court, gets sentenced to 25 years in prison. About 12 years into his sentence, Mary Johnson decides that she wants to meet with him. Maybe it was overwhelming, the grief and the anger and the bitterness, but for some reason she reaches out. He says, no way, absolutely not. O'Shea says, I'm not meeting with that woman. Nine months later, something happened. He changed his mind and decided to meet with her. And she didn't have a big plan for what the meeting was going to be like. She just knew she didn't know him. He didn't know her son. That's what, what happened was that this man murdered her son. And so she sat down, and that's how she started the meeting. She said, you don't know me. I don't know you. You didn't know my son, but we need to get to know each other. <laughs> okay. Like, Here we go. And uh, what I read was actually the interview of them talking about the first meeting that they had. And they talked for Two hours. And they talked about how this young man, O'Shea, and her son, uh, some of their story overlapped with one another and how they ended up at this place and all those things. And, and what Mary said was, that she said, when he was leaving, they got up to leave and she just broke down. And she starts weeping, and so much so that she starts to fall down. And he said, I just grabbed her. Like, you'd grab, you don't let this woman fall to the ground. So I grabbed her like you'd grab your own mother. And then she wept in his arms. And then they were separated. And when he left the room, Mary said, I thought to myself, I just hugged the man who murdered my son. Like it seemed wrong. But then she said that she felt this movement come through her feet and through her legs and through her body. And it was like it left her. And she said, at that moment, I felt like all the anger and all the bitterness and all the resentment was gone. And she forgave him. And they continued on in their relationship he ended up serving about five more years in his prison sentence. When it was at 17 years of his 25-year sentence, they were going to let him out. And Mary started to help him get assimilated into regular culture, so much so that she talked to her landlord about him moving in. She lived in a duplex, and they now live next door to each other in this duplex and talk on a daily basis. He takes out her garbage. She talks to him about what job he's working, whether he's meeting any girls, and she wants to see him graduate, hopefully get married someday. And they were talking this relationship with one another, And he said, in in prison, you know, this woman's forgiven me. You're not used to receiving love in prison. It's not normal relationships. And he said, I don't even know how to put words to this forgiveness. Let me put one word to it. Mercy. You're being given what you don't deserve. At the end of the interview, he's jokingly saying to her, I love you, lady. And she says back to him, I love you too, son. And I thought, who calls the person who murders their only son, son? The answer is God does. To you and to me. Because it's our sin that nails him to the cross. We oftentimes think, like it's just the sin was just this little barrier, and Jesus took care of that, and now I'm good, and I'll live a good life. But you don't realize you're God's enemy. Romans 5.8. When you sin, that put a nail in the arm of Jesus Christ to put him on the cross. It was your, your, we think we're not that bad. We're murderers. We murdered his son. He took on the wrath of God for us. The wrath was on us. And the wrath goes then to his son, his only son, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes on him. But it was our murder that put him on the cross. That's why he went to the cross. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You have to have mercy or you're not even a Christian. Peter talks about it. In 1 Peter, he says this, that we were not a people, and then we became a people. In 1 Peter 2.10, once you were not a people, but you are the people of God, not because of what you've done. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. That's what makes us distinct. We've been given a blessing we don't deserve. Tim, or Titus says it like this, Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, so you can't get God to give you mercy. But because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And we received his mercy at the point of salvation. But here's the thing that many of us miss. You still need mercy to continue to walk in this relationship with Jesus. So many of us were like the Galatians. And Paul warns the Galatians, you started off by faith. You were doing so good. And he talks about it like it's a race you're running. He said, who cut in on you? You started off living by faith. Now you're trying to live it by works. Like now it depends upon you. No, the whole thing's by faith. The whole relationship with Jesus, is you walking by faith, so it means the whole thing requires you to recognize you are helpless. The whole thing is for you to recognize your helplessness, and then it's in your helplessness that He's then made strong. He's seen as strong because it's in your helplessness when you live by faith. And here's a little little timeout, little parentheses. See, the problem is many of us try to live the Christian life. We don't need faith. We we do what we can manage. But you can't do the stuff that Jesus is talking about in this passage. You're going to go and be generous, like he's telling people to be generous in this passage. You're going to love your wife like Christ loves the church without living by faith. You're going to deal radically with your sin. No, I can manage my sin. Yeah, you can manage your sin, but you can't deal radically with your sin. You can't have extravagant generosity. You can't love your wife with the self-sacrificial love that Jesus gave for us without living by faith. You are helpless. And it's when you come to that realization that then his power is seen. And we see it all throughout the whole Bible. Think about Gideon. Why does God tell Gideon, you've got too many soldiers? He knows that Gideon's going to win this battle. And he knows he doesn't need Gideon to win the battle. He doesn't want Gideon getting the glory. He doesn't want Gideon being deceived either. He so says, whittle it down, get less soldiers. And you can pick the whole Bible. But just think about Mark. What have we seen in Mark? It's when people come to the realization of their helplessness that Jesus has then seen as strong. Look at the disciples in Mark chapter 4. When they're in that boat and there's a storm going on, there's professional fishermen there. If God was looking for skill and talent and ability and experience, those were the guys. There's another guy in the boat. He's sleeping. His name is Jesus. It takes the other guys coming to the spot where they realize they're helpless, then they wake up Jesus and then with the word of his mouth, shh, wind, shh, waves. glassy smooth. It's in their helplessness that his strength is then made known. Why is it that Jairus' daughter dies on the way? She's sick, and he already knows he's got to come to Jesus. He needs Jesus' help. And I so said, don't bother the teacher anymore. She's dead. It's over. There's nothing anyone can do. And it's in his most helpless and hopeless state that then Jesus is glorified because he shows his strength. And you can pick all the story. What about the guy in Mark chapter 9 who comes to Jesus and says, if you can, he's got his demon-possessed boy, if you can help. And Jesus says, if I can. All things are possible for those who believe. And then the guy comes to the realization I can't even believe unless you help me. I believe, help my unbelief. I can't even have faith. I need you to help with the doubts. I'm helpless. It's in this it's why, why in Mark 5 is there the guy that's demon? Why do they tell us? Why does Mark? There's so many details we don't get told in the life that was happening in the first century in the life of Jesus, but the details that are there are important. Why does he tell us in Mark 5 with that demoniac who's got a legion of demons that people couldn't even keep him contained? They couldn't even chain this guy. And then Jesus, the word of his mouth, cast the, pig, cast the demons in the pigs. It's in helplessness that strength is then seen. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, after talking about his thorn in the flesh, he says, I'm going to boast in my weaknesses because it's in my weaknesses that your strength is made known. And in verse 10 he says, that's why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses and then he goes on and he talks about things that would take most of us to that bottom. In hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, we've got this deception that we think that lies about us becoming independent, us becoming self-sufficient, actually fights against our faith. It's when we come to the realization of our helplessness and then live in that state of helplessness that we actually experience strength because it's not dependent upon you. You do mess up. You can embrace that because it's in that very stuff that Jesus' strength is then seen in your life. That's why His grace is so important. We sing about it, we talk about it, but a lot of times we treat it like it's this side thing. It's a nice extra with the main course, and I'll handle the main course. Move the chess pieces, whatever analogy you want to use. But we should be crying out for mercy on a regular basis. The only people that can cry out for mercy are the people that are helpless and then have a view of Jesus that he can actually help. But not only do you need to recognize your helplessness, you also, if you're going to be an ideal follower of Jesus, what we see next in this guy is that he comes unhindered. You must seek to follow Jesus unhindered. This message could be called unhindered and helpless because that's the ideal picture of the ideal disciple. We must come to Jesus seeking Jesus to follow Jesus unhindered. And look, I'll read verse 49 again. It says, when Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. And then verse 50, throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. Verse 51, we've seen this question before. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi. And the word he actually uses there for rabbi, we only see it, we see it another time. Mary uses it, it's very personal. It's my master, my Lord, it's not just teacher. I want to see. And it's actually, I want to see again. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Did you notice here that we don't see any details about how Jesus healed this guy? It doesn't say he spit in his eyes like it does with another guy. It doesn't say he touched him. It doesn't say what words he said. Instead, the focus is on this man's faith. And you go back to verse 51 where he asked Jesus that question. What do you want me to do for you? There's an intentional contrast here with other people that we've seen in Mark chapter 8 through Mark chapter 10. Specifically, it ties back into the exact same question we saw last week. Remember, last week, uh, James and John came to Jesus and said, Do whatever we want you to do. <laughs> no one says yes to that question or that statement. <laughs> And then Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Exact same question we have here in verse 51. What did James and John ask for? They asked for position. One to be at the right, one to be at the left. They were asking for glory. What this man asked for? Mercy. The total contrast. What would you ask for? If you had the opportunity. You know, we're at Christmas season's coming up here. We're going to start our Christmas series next week. Everybody's invited. It's not called the invitation, but you're all invited. Or different people are going to talk about Christmas presents. Your kids are going to have wishes of what they hope that you can If they, I mean, some to your kids, some of you, you seem all powerful and all knowing to them. Believe that or not, that's crazy, isn't it? My my wife's telling me this is a little side part. This is extra for you not to pay for this. Uh, Joke. My wife told me that uh, one of my kids in their school, she goes to public school here in town, and the students in the class found out that her dad's a pastor, and they think I have special powers. (laughs) I am going to let the boys in that class believe that as long as possible. Hopefully I don't go in for career day and they ask me to do some tricks or something. But they think that you have all the power. You've got all the money and they're going to ask you for presents. They get to ask for anything they want. What are they going to ask for? What would you ask for? What would you ask? You could ask anything you want. It's a great question. We see it throughout the New Testament. And we see it in verse 36 of chapter 10. We see it in verse 51. One guy talks about Glory. And power and position. Two guys, James and John. Another guy asks for mercy. Knows he's undeserving. I just want to. You think about what he could have asked for. Of course, he's going to ask to see. You may think to yourself, as a blind person, you're going to ask for anything. You're going to ask to see. But remember, this guy spent who knows how long, maybe years, asking for money. Here's an all-powerful guy. Just give me more money than I could ever use. He doesn't ask for money. There's a level of faith here that he, and certainly a level of boldness, that he believes the person he's asking can actually deliver. I want, I'll work again. I'm not asking for all the money in the world. I just want to see. And remember, he believes that he can't see because of his sin. I don't, I want you to just give me a second chance. I want mercy here. What would you ask for? The reason why it's a great question is because how we answer it reveals our hearts. And so what would you ask for? Not what would your kids ask you for. What would you ask for? Would it be mercy or glory or money or power? Or that he'd move a couple chess pieces and help you out to get your plan? This guy says, just give me mercy. I want to see. And then it says in the last verse, verse 52, that he followed Jesus along the road. He became a follower of Jesus. James Brooks tells us in his commentary, the New American Commentary, that's not that he just followed Jesus down the road. Of course he did that on his way to Jerusalem. But that's actually a technical term for discipleship. This guy is a picture of the ideal disciple. He's living by faith. He's crying out for mercy. He recognizes Jesus in Jesus' glory. And what we see is that everything in this passage, he's not allowing anything to hinder him. He's not allowing his past sin to hinder him, which is probably why he believes that he's blind. He doesn't allow other people to hinder him. The many people that are rebuking him and telling him to shut up is he's crying out to Jesus for mercy. He's not letting other people stop him. He's not letting his past sin stop him. He's not letting his stuff stop him. There's not many details in this story, and so none of them are insignificant. You go back up to verse 50, and what did it say? Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. Now, his cloak may not have been the thing that was hindering him from following Jesus, but it's significant, the fact that it's told here, that he throws it aside. It might be his only earthly possession. and he throw, I'm not going to let that get in the way. Now, think about this in light of what we've seen through Mark chapter 8 to Mark chapter 10. This guy's acting contrary to the rich man. Sell all your possessions. Can't do that. I want you, God. I just love money more. And he leaves sad. Are you going to deal with your sin? Cut off your hand. Gouge out your eye. How many people left sad that day? I'm not dealing radically with my sin. This guy's not letting his sin come between him and Jesus. He's not letting his stuff come between him and Jesus. He's not letting other people come between him and Jesus. What about the disciples who are the ones blocking the children? Don't, Don't hinder the kids from coming to me. And what what are people saying here? No, 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 you're not. Some of you, it's other people that are stopping you from getting to Jesus. Some of you, it's relationships that are hindering you from fully following Christ. You look in here and you see he's not letting his own selfish ambition. You think about this is an intentional contrast from James and John, verse 36, What's stopping them from seeing Jesus. They want Jesus to be who they want him to be because they're so ambitious for their own glory and they think Jesus is gonna help them get there. It's stopping them from seeing Jesus in his glory, their own goals. This guy's not going to let his own goals. Just have I don't deserve anything. Just give me mercy. He's not hindered by sin. He's not hindered by self. He's not hindered by stuff. He's not hindered by other people. Some of us, if we were to survey us, what is our things? Some of our hindrances aren't sin and stuff. And it's not those things. Some of you, it's just, it's life. It's like you're just so busy. I loved what uh, Pastor Horner said when he was here about a month ago. He says, I think Facebook is God's way of telling Christians, you got more time than you think. And those things, they hinder us. What this guy's doing in this passage is what's commanded in Hebrews chapter 12. Before we put Hebrews 12, uh, uh, 12 1 on the screen, let me just remind you in Hebrews chapter 11, it's called the Hall of Faith. And in the Hall of Faith, what we get are all these guys who lived by faith Noah. Go build a boat. But what are other people going to think? That's not in the Bible, by the way. He just goes and builds a boat. God told me to do I'm going to follow him unhindered. Moses, you're living in a palace, you got all the privileges, you got all the schooling, you're, you're the prince of Egypt, I want you to go lead some slaves. Ah, uh, can we renegotiate that contract? Nope. He goes and leads them. Abraham, you're going to go, i want to make you the father of nations, we can't have kids. He doesn't throw up his obstacles, he doesn't give us hint. Go or, I'm not even going to tell you where to go, just come with me. It's not, I don't know, and I'd like to have control, and i kind of like to weigh this all out before I go, you know, build the tower, going to weigh the continent. <laughs> now you're misusing the Bible there, Abraham. That's not what happens. He goes and he follows. And, and then in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that's not just your friends are sitting by a church today. It's talking about Noah and Moses and Abraham and Enoch. And he goes through Hebrews chapter 11. It's these people who, who did it. And we got the, they didn't have the examples. We have the example. You've got all these examples. It's saying you're, you're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders. And before you read the next phrase, it's, that's even good stuff. What John Piper talks about in this verse, he says that when he was a kid, he remembered a pastor saying, you're talking about running a race. In running a race, you get rid of everything that slows you down. You don't just carry extra weights around because they're nice weights. They're good things. This isn't just about sin. This is about anything that hinders you from running the race that God has for you. And the sin that so easily entangles. Run. That's the only command. Run the race that he's put before you. And here we Run the race. The ra- what is it? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. How are you living by faith? What is hindering that? Deal with it. Get rid of that. Throw it off. Cast it off. What is it? Is it a relationship? You might need to end that relationship. Is it a job? That's it's a good paying job, but it's stopping you from following Christ? Is it your stuff? Maybe at one time in your life it wasn't your stuff, but now it is. got to give some stuff away. Is it all of it, like the rich man? Is it 50% like uh, Zacchaeus? I don't know. But, But if your stuff's the hindrance, don't let that, this is too important. Is it sin? Maybe it's time to be public with your sin with some other believers and deal radically with your sin. Is it what other people think? Is it people that are telling you, hey that don't get crazy with this religion thing. because I mean, you you can be moral and stuff, but just simmer down. Be polite. Have good etiquette. This guy is the example because he went after it. Bartimaeus, why is he named? Many people believe, scholars believe, the reason why his name is mentioned and other people's names aren't mentioned is because he became well-known in the church. He was a follower, an ideal follower of Jesus. He followed Jesus along the road, a technical term for discipleship. He throws everything off. He cries out for mercy and he sees Jesus in his glory. What about you? Does your image of the ideal follower change? Do you fit the image? And if not, what's hindering you? And throw it off. Get rid of that. Not everything. This ain't gonna change everything in your life. But what's the what's the main thing that's coming between you and Jesus today? If it's sin, deal with the sin. If it's other people, you've got to deal with those relationships. It's a job, if it's your time, if what is it? Because it doesn't just happen that you become this intimate follower of Jesus that's willing to, to, to give up everything to follow him. You've got to see him in his glory. That means you've got to be in his presence. You've got to spend time in his word. It doesn't just happen. You've got to be with him so you might have to make some time. Throw off the stuff that's hindering your time. Throw off the people that are pulling you back. Throw, get rid of the junk in your life. It's, it might not even be bad stuff. It might not even be sin, but it's slowing you down and running this race. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you right now, just in a time of reflection on your glory and repentance in our own souls. As we repent, we turn from the things that are hindering us. And and Father, I pray right now, supernaturally, by your Holy Spirit, that you'd speak into our hearts, each person of different stuff, that you'd show us what is it that's hindering us from following you. And what do you want us to do about it? Father, I pray that we'd see ourselves as helpless. We would realize that our need for you, we can't even see the things that are hindering us without you revealing them. God, will you do supernatural work right now? Will you show us? And Father, I pray if there's anybody here who doesn't know you as Savior, that today would be the day of salvation. They wouldn't let anything hinder them. Not that somebody else, I need to talk to a friend, or I've always been religious, and what are people gonna think? That it wouldn't be about what people think. It wouldn't be about what it might mean for their next steps, but they would run to you. That they wouldn't let anybody hinder them from getting to you. And I'll just pause even while I'm praying and just say, if you need to trust Jesus as your Savior today, we're gonna have some people at the back of the room after the service, and they would love to talk with you. They'd love to pray with you. And you can pray to receive Jesus. That means acknowledging your sin and calling Jesus to be your Savior because you can't save yourself. And Father, I pray for those that are believers, that are followers of yours, and you're doing a work in their hearts. Don't want us leave this room without being more like your son, Jesus. God, speak to our hearts right now. Show us how helpless we are. Reveal to us the things that hinder us from following you.